Hey, this is Brian Golden, lead pastor of Centerpoint Church, and I just want to welcome you to our podcast. I also really want to thank you for taking the time to listen. And I want to let you know that now you can watch these messages as well, anytime and anywhere. And the easiest way to do that is on the Centerpoint Church app. In addition to that, the Centerpoint app is also the easiest way to stay connected with what's happening at Centerpoint. So go to your favorite app store, search Centerpoint Church Florida, and you'll find it right there. Most importantly, I really want to say if you're a longtime follower of Jesus, or maybe you're just investigating who Jesus is, I really hope this message encourages you to take your next step in your journey of faith or in your journey of investigating faith. Thanks again for listening. Hey, good morning, everybody. Glad you're here in the house with us, whether you're at the North Campus or South Campus. We always want to just acknowledge we're excited that you're here. And also, uh, it doesn't matter who you are, we're excited that you're here. So every kind of person imaginable, it means anyone struggling with anything, anyone that has a story, doesn't matter what your faith story is, but doesn't matter what your background in church is, we're really glad every single person is here. If you're happy someone's here, make some noise, put your hands together, man. Here's the deal. We are seeing so much growth happen in our church. It is incredible. Over the last several years, our church has grown in an incredible way. Uh, we're really excited about that. But also, the thing that we are most excited about is people turning and trusting Jesus. As we had earlier this morning, we already had people trust Jesus, which is something we want to celebrate, which is a great time for all the people in our church to celebrate big. There you go. You guys got it. You're ready for it, man. Because here's the deal. Don't take it for granted that we have people coming to Jesus, that we have people coming from all walks of life. That is something we want to celebrate, we want to pray for, and continue to look for. And again, no matter what your story is, we're glad that you're here. My name is Justin. I'm the next-gen pastor here, uh, and I'm glad to continue this series called Fighting for Control. Uh, we're really talking about how we need to, in order to have freedom, we really have to control certain things in our life. Uh, before we continue in this talk, um, I just want to uh, take a second and let you know in two weeks we have a brand new series coming out. Bryant, our lead pastor, will be back. and He will be leading a series through the life of David, which is going to be incredible. Which if you've ever been here on a Sunday when Bryant hasn't been here for a minute, oh man, he brings a fire. He preaches for about three hours. So it's going to be, no, I'm just kidding. Some of you, you're new and you're like, wait a second, this is not my kind of church. Like, uh, so if you are here, man, it's going to be incredible uh, and really looking forward to him coming in a couple weeks to f start a brand new series. And it is always, always, always a good time to invite someone uh, to come to church with you, especially at the beginning of a new series. And so just invite them out as we start on a series on the life of David in two weeks. Uh, so today we're going to continue uh, this topic of fighting for control. As we talked last week, a lot of us, we feel restricted by stuff. We feel a lot of control in life, don't we? Like, it's your alarm clock this morning. My alarm clock went off. I hit snooze two times. I was tempted to hit it a third time, but I was like, man, I can't be late to church. Like, if you're late to church, you can just sneak in the back and sit in the back. If I'm late to church, it gets real awkward real quick for everybody. So I was like, man, the alarm clock's waking us up. Some of you have jobs. You got to punch in, punch out for work. Or maybe you have a physical thing where it's a dietary restriction, something going on where it can feel like there's a lot of control. You're told where to go, what to do, how to behave all the time, and you're just tired of it. Right, like whether you're 17 or 14 or 37 or in your 50s, whatever, like you're just like, can I just finally do things on my own and have freedom? The problem is when we have freedom completely and there's no restrictions, honestly, what happens is pretty soon we start to have restrictions based on the choices that we made when we had total freedom. 
And some of you, you've lived this life, you've, you've experienced where you have total freedom in your finances. You can spend your money because you got this plastic card that says you can borrow all kinds of money, and you just swipe it, you don't think about it, and then pretty soon you realize, like, oh, I probably need to get a second job because I had all this freedom over here, but now all of a sudden I don't have so much freedom because these people are coming. I have to actually pay them back. Like, imagine that. Right? Or, or maybe you made choices with your health, or maybe you made choices with your family where you stepped down and said, I want to have all sorts of freedom over here. I'm going to do whatever I want. No one is the boss of me. And then eventually, because you're making decisions like that, someone will be the boss of you. Because everything we do has an action and a reaction. And so we're set up where if we can control specific things in our lives, we actually will have tremendous amounts of freedom. And lastly, we talked about the idea of growth, that something is growing in you. And whatever grows in you eventually will have control over you. And growth is up to you alone, but it does not impact you alone. And today we're going to talk about a similar thing. Uh, We're going to talk about happiness and joy and your emotions. Because just like growth, you have the responsibility to control your emotions, your happiness, your joy. But it doesn't just impact you. It actually impacts all sorts of people around you. See, what we do a lot of times with happiness and joy and good positive emotions is we have like a eventually kind of idea of like a destination. Like when I get this thing, I'll be happy. Like when I make that money, I'll be happy. Right? Some of you are like, I'm making that money right now and it's not enough money because you got a nicer car, we have more kids, you have a bigger house. Right? Like when I get my grades up higher, when I get better grades, then I'll be happy. When I get into that group of friends, I'll be happy. When I make the team, I'll be happy. When I lose the weight, I'll be happy. Whatever it is, when I get married, I'm going to be happy. And when we view happiness as a destination, the problem with that mentality is the destination is always in the future. We never actually get there. And some of you, you've fought and, and sought happiness as a destination, and you finally, you've arrived, and you're like, man, I should be so happy. And for about two seconds, you are really happy. Right? And then pretty soon you're looking around, and the money that you thought would make you happy pretty soon is not enough money. And you look around, and people who make more money, you go, man, if I had that much money, the, the relationship you're in, you thought would make you happy. And pretty soon you go, man, that doesn't make me happy. And I'm looking at other people, other situations, other relationships, whatever it is, and we keep viewing happiness as a destination. But the reality for all of us, it doesn't matter what you believe, it doesn't matter what your story is, what your background, what your situation is even right now. The reality is for all of us, happiness is a decision, not a destination. So you can actually choose to be happy and imagine the freedom that will come if you choose to be happy and say, I will control my happiness and my external situation will not control my happiness. Because for a lot of us, what we've done is when we have this mentality, we hand our happiness over to that thing and say, when I get that thing, I'll be happy. And that thing becomes our master and we're a slave to it. And you're working towards it and there's no joy in your life. There's no enjoyment of life. You go, man, I am so tired. I'm so frustrated. I'm working towards something. I can't ever get there. And I really want to try to get there, but it's just so far away. And this is where we can understand, we can even look at Scripture to understand when we choose happiness on the front end, it actually leads to success. See, so much of the time we say success will give me happiness, but the reality is more often than not, happiness will lead to success. And this isn't just like church talk, motivational speaker, like rah, 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 just be happy, everything's going to work out for you. Because that, that's not, honestly, I don't really believe that. Because I try to choose happiness and, and life still happens, doesn't it? Like even, even things like think about your life today. You're coming to church, you're trying to look good, you're trying to be good, you're trying to show up, families on time, and like how many things hit the fan today? Like, let's be honest. Like, Sundays are hard, aren't they? 
Anybody else in here, your kid can't sleep Saturday night to save their life? Like, I don't know what it is. You go, man, I'm trying so much, and you're working towards trying to get happiness. And this is where the reality is, a lot of times happiness, when we put it on the front end, it will help us in everything. And this isn't just my words. This is actually uh, people much smarter than me have understood this, and they've said this. One of the guys, his name was his Sean Aker. And he discovered uh, what he calls the happiness advantage. He's, Sean is a guy who studies positive psychology. Sean actually got into Harvard on some scholarship. He didn't expect to go to Harvard. And apparently, if you go to Harvard, you're pretty smart. So I take his word for it. He gets into Harvard, studies psychology. And then y'all know it's okay to laugh in church at the North Campus? You know this, okay? Because y'all already had a service this morning. I knew some of this stuff was funny. And you're not laughing at it. Like, you don't have to laugh, but help a brother out, okay? Show some love. We're going to have a good time in church, for real. This is the way I always talk about it, man. Here's the deal. We want to be authentic. You come and you see me on the stage. You see me at Walmart on Saturday. I want to be the same person. Just like you should be the same person. And here's the deal. We love having fun in church. And we're talking about happiness. So y'all be act like it. Or else. No, I'm just kidding. So Sean, actually, he's, a, he's studying uh, psychology at Harvard, and then he goes and studies happiness in Harvard students after he graduates. And it's, it's interesting because he was talking about this in a TED Talk where his friends would come and say, why are you studying happiness in Harvard students? They must be happy. They're students at Harvard. Which shows the common belief that if you arrive somewhere, sometimes physically a destination, you should be happy. And he saw, honestly, the opposite was true. They'd be happy at first, but then the weight of the academic studies and the relationships and all the different things started to weigh down on them, and their happiness quickly left. But there were people that had what he, he called the happiness advantage, where these people chose to be happy on the front end, and instead of saying success will make me happy, they said, I'm going to be happy no matter what, and we'll see what happens with success. And what he found, and this is, again, this is a guy, if you're, like, not sure about the Bible, which is totally okay. You can be here and be not sure about the Bible. You might say, I believe some stuff, not everything. You might say, I don't believe anything. That's totally okay. Guess what? This guy's not a Bible guy. He's a psychologist. And this is where we need to remember, this is like a side note for free, like the scriptures and science are not fighting with each other. They're not at odds with each other. Honestly, a lot of times, Scripture and science work together when you understand them correctly. And a lot of times, even you look at scientific things, and they're affirming things you see in Scripture. And you're going to see, even through the study that this guy did, and also through the passage we're going to look at, they're actually complementary to each other. And what he saw was people that chose to be happy at the beginning, instead of waiting for happiness, they were 30% more productive. They had more energy, they were more creative, they had higher intelligence, and, and they just honestly performed better overall than people who were stressed, negative, or neutral in their thinking about the topics. You've probably heard it said something like, it, life is 10% of what happens to you and 90% about how you respond. Right, like most of us have heard that. That actually, uh, I don't know when that saying came out. This, his research was fairly recent, um, but his study actually affirmed that and said only about 10% of your long-term happiness is, is as a result of your external situation. So if that's true, then how come so many of us are walking around sad and negative and neutral about life in general? How many of us, like you, you dread Sunday night because you know Monday's coming? And here's the deal. If you don't like Monday through Friday, you don't like your life. Like, for real, just statistically speaking, you don't like your life, and you need to figure out a way to get out of that situation. But here's also the reality. A lot of us don't need to get out of the situation. We need to choose happiness in the middle of the situation. 
And then what you do, and this is you will see this happen, is when you choose happiness, things all around you are different. I was talking to a lady in our gathering. She was actually at the other campus this morning. She told me she was going through a really difficult situation. She said, so many other people were unhappy, and I just chose to be happy. And my situation, even though we were walking through a very similar lifestyle thing, going through it, like I had something a lot of people didn't have. And my situation just felt so much better because they chose to be happy. And for us, like again, especially if we're Jesus followers, like, especially if you say, I, I follow Jesus, I understand he wants to give me his life, like life right now, not just a life to come. Like, if you're a Jesus follower, how can you be negative about life? Like, how can you walk through, like, life like an Eeyore mentality where you're just like, oh, life sucks, things are so hard, oh, my goodness, this thing happened, that thing happened, like, it's so difficult. Like, how many of us live like that when we don't have to? And again, just like controlling your growth the same is true of your happiness. When you choose to control your happiness, it is on your shoulders alone. It's your responsibility alone, but it doesn't impact you alone. And there's people all around you that are watching you. And you might be surprised at the opportunity that it gives you when you simply acknowledge this is a difficult situation, but I'm going to choose happiness no matter what. And it's not, again, it's not a fake, I'm just going to paint a smile on and just pretend everything's great and happy. No, I'm actually going to choose an internal joy and happiness to say, you're not going to move me out of this place, even though the situation seems like I should be moved out. So we're going to read from a guy, his guy's name is James. He wrote a book in the the Bible, the New Testament. He actually, James was the half-brother of Jesus. I think for me, especially because I got two brothers and a sister, like that's a huge, huge argument for the claims of Jesus being true. Because if you've got a brother or sister, just think about this, and you've heard this before, like what would they have to do to convince you they were God? Like i got two brothers and a sister, and none of them are Jesus. And I don't even know if they've heard of Jesus sometimes, to be honest with you, right? It's like, like if you know a brother or a sister, you know, like, if, and not just like i got a message from God, not just like God woke me up in the night with his dream, not, but like I, I'm him. Like, I'm actually the guy. I'm, I'm the Messiah. I'm the promised one. So, like, James writing and James believing in his own brother is a huge argument for why Jesus probably was true when he said he is God. Because for me, like, it probably would literally take my brother or sister, like, dying and coming back to life for me to believe that they're actually God. Like, and that's actually what Jesus claimed to do, and I believe that the evidence supports that he did. So James wrote this letter. He wrote it to all different people in the church. And what he's telling them is, hey, even though you're going through difficulty, you choose joy. This is what he says in James chapter 1, verse 2. It says, consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Now, some of you are like, okay, I understand why James believed that Jesus was God, because James was on something. Because if James is saying, I'm going through trials, and I need to count it joy to go through trials, like James had something that we don't have legalized in Florida yet. Right? So, so here's the deal, though. If you read this and you look through the whole thing, you're going to see why James says you choose joy no matter what. He says consider, and actually this word consider is a financial term. It means to evaluate. And all of us, we evaluate things based on our values. 
So whether it's a good opportunity, a bad opportunity, we evaluate things based on our values. I had a friend of mine who he uh, was getting engaged to this girl. He was excited about it, and he went and it was like sneaky, sneaky, like I'm going to go get the ring. I'm not going to talk to her about the ring at all, which is a bad move, guys. Don't do that. I'm just going to go get her a ring because she just needs a diamond. I just want to get it for her. And he planned this whole thing. He gave her a diamond ring, and this girl is like the sweetest girl, second sweetest girl in the world compared to my wife. Got to put on work, you know? And he gave her this ring, right? And this, his fiance, she's incredible. Again, and she basically was really loving, really kind, but like, I didn't want a diamond. I wanted an emerald. And like, not, and like some of you were like, she's so, no, 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 for real. Like, she was like loving and kind, like you spent too much money on this ring. The value, a lot of the ladies, all you ladies, some of you looking for a diamond ring, right? You're like, man, if he could give me a diamond, I really want it. You would value that differently. But because of her values, she evaluated that ring and said, this is not really what I really want. And if you want to give me something I want, this is actually what I want. And what happens for us is we evaluate everything based on our values. We look at everything. If this is, if this is a good thing, then, and if I count this a good thing, then it's extra good for me. It might be good to somebody else. They might love it more than me, but I'm going to evaluate things based on my values. And when I value comfort and peace above everything else, any trial, any difficulty, any discomfort is going to come against that. I'm going to evaluate that and say, this is bad. Because I value comfort, discomfort is bad. But here's the reality, like, if you look through history and you understand people, the people that we read about, the people that we look to and see as historical figures, we go, wow, we admire and marvel at, are not people who live lives of comfort. These are people who stepped out and did uncomfortable things and lived lives of discomfort in order to do something meaningful. And the truth is, a lot of times we want to grow, we want to do things, but growth and comfort are not always together. And you can choose, do you want to value growth or comfort because you can't always have both. So James is saying, you need to evaluate, you need to look at these things, you need to count it as valuable. And when I value something, I react in a certain way towards it. See, a little thing about me, um, some of you know this, some of you might not know this, is I can be, um, how would you say, anal about things, Right? Right, so, so like, for example, my wife, Rachel, like, we both share responsibilities at home. We wash and fold laundry and all that stuff. But Rachel will fold my laundry and leave it on my bed, or our bed. I don't have my own bed. That'd be weird. This ain't the Dick Van Dyke show, okay? We got three kids for a reason. So we got, she puts my laundry right on my bed because she knows I am very particular about how I put away my laundry. And I, like, rotate stock through so I know what I wore when. Some of your wives are like, nope. Rachel's smart. Like, I rotate things through, and I've told, I've explained it to her, like, babe, look, I made a flow chart, how to do my laundry. You can put it away this way. If you do it, and she's like, I'm just going to love you and leave it there, because we don't need more marriage counseling, right? But also, another thing for me is, like, I really want to be on time. Any of y'all love being on time? You put your hand out. It's okay. It's good ministry. It's good. You got to be on time. Respect someone's time. Show up on time. Actually, who am I kidding? Y'all don't care about being on time. You come in second, wait, halfway through the second song every Sunday. I see you. That's why we sit in the back. We're counting people who come in late. You late, you late, you late. No, we don't. Not that kind of church. But so when I'm trying to get someone on time, and some of you, this is where you're at on Sunday morning, right? You're trying to get someone on time. But the problem is I have three little people in my house. And they don't know anything about time. Like anything at all. And I'm trying to get out the door. And I'm really valuing getting somewhere on time. And what can happen is when I value getting on time, then I will evaluate getting on time as the most important thing. And I devalue my relationship with my kids. Now, how many of y'all, I mean, you don't need to make noise because it would be uncomfortable for you. 
How many of y'all have raised your voice and got a little temper with your kids when they're dragging you down, making you slow? Kids, don't raise your hand. You still live in their house. Be safe and smart about it. Right? So many of us go, man, I'm trying to get somewhere on time, and time is important. You need to get on time. But here's the reality. If me getting somewhere on time is more valuable than my relationship with my kids, I have a broken value system. And I need to slow down for a minute and say, okay, like, yeah, I know I got to help you with your shoes. I know, like, and maybe I just need to start getting ready earlier. Maybe there's some things I can do because what I value impacts my attitudes. And for some of us, in order for us to fight for control over our attitude, over our happiness, over our joy, we need to begin to value things differently. Like, what are the things that you spend the most time in life doing, thinking about, spending money on? Like, where do your values end up in life? Because your values will impact all of your relationships because your values will impact your attitude and your reaction to people. And even James talks about trials and testing, and sometimes we hate tests, don't we? Like, that begins in school. All the high school students, middle school students in here, you're like, I hate tests. Tests are horrible. Tests are not bad because tests, they just evaluate. They just help you think through something. And trials, actually, is a similar way. It helps you evaluate. It helps you see that the claims are true. Actually, back uh, in medieval times, they would have these, these blacksmiths who'd make armor. And they would hammer and make their armor. And they'd put it in. They'd hammer and make it. And they, what they'd do, especially once they started using firearms and gunpowder in battlefield, is they would take, they'd build the armor. And then they'd set it up over here on a thing. And they'd take a gun. And they'd point it at the armor. And they'd shoot at the armor. Because they were testing the armor to see if it could withstand the attacks of the enemy. And when you're going around looking for armor, you're looking for armor that has some dimples in it because it showed that whoever created that thing tested it to prove that it was able to withstand the attacks of the enemy. And isn't that so true about faith? Like, if your faith is not being tested, is not being tried, like, how strong is it? And what happens, though, is we see people who have incredible faith, and we want the incredible faith, but we don't want to go through the testing that it takes to get there. Because creating incredible faith is a lot like creating armor. It gets hammered and hit a lot. It goes into the fire. It gets bent and twisted, and it's uncomfortable, and it's hard work. But the hard work is worth it because it protects you from the enemy. And that is why James is saying you consider it joy. Why? Because trials are proving and producing something in you. And what it's proving and producing is worth it. And you actually see this all over the scriptures, even the life of Jesus. Jesus went, if you, if you read through Matthew, uh, the first book of the New Testament, which I tell you, if you're investigating faith, start with the life of Jesus. Everything else in Scripture is important. Like, that all is important. It's all beneficial. You should study those things as well. But study the life of Jesus because that is the center to everything. And even the, the book of Matthew writes down, Matthew, one of Jesus' followers, he's writing down about Jesus and his life. And in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus goes to his cousin, John, whose John's whole job was to get everyone ready for Jesus coming. He didn't know it was Jesus. He's just trying to get people ready for the Messiah. He's like the hype guy going, Messiah's coming, Messiah's coming, Messiah's coming, get ready. And finally Jesus comes and he's like, this is my cousin. I've known you for years, but all in this moment, I realize you are the Messiah. And Jesus actually gets baptized to show he's turning to God. Not that he ever turned away from God, but just an outward expression of I have a relationship with God. It's just, and it's an incredible scene. This dove swoop down low, and then there's this voice from God talking about this is my son. I love you. I'm well pleased with you, right? And it's like awesome. Jesus' followers are high-fiving each other. They're making Messiah 2020 stickers. They're like, Jesus for Messiah. We got pins. We got banners. We got, where should we go first? We should go to this place and that place in that place. And Jesus is like, 
all right, guys, I got to go. I'm going to go to the desert for 40 days. Bye. And he walks out. And can you imagine his disciples going, well, Jesus, like, this is, like, every, this is so public. Everything is right here. And Jesus says, no, I need to go through a time of trial and testing to prove that my claims are what they are, and then I'll come back. And Jesus didn't eat or, or drink or eat. He had to drink water because he was a fully man and fully God. He didn't eat for 40 days. And he's hungry, and Satan comes up against him and tests him and tries him. And he goes through trials where the enemy is coming against him and say, hey, why don't you turn these loaves or these stones into loaves of bread? Like, you're real hungry, Jesus. Why don't you turn it into loaves of bread? Jesus is like, that's not the way it's supposed to go. And he actually goes, Satan comes against him. Hey, look at all these kingdoms of the earth. Everything can be yours if you simply will bow down to me and worship me. And Jesus is like, that's not the way. All these kingdoms will worship me one day, but this is not the way to get that thing. And Satan brings them and they go to the temple, up on the temple. He's like, hey, jump off the temple and, and God's going to send his angels to protect you. And this going to be this incredible, miraculous display showing your power. And Jesus is saying, that's not the way I'm to show my power. I'm not following you. I'm not listening to you. See, the things that Satan was trying to get Jesus to do, a lot of them were good things, but they were the wrong way to get good things. And that, for some of us, is the most intense kind of trials because you know this is a good thing that I want, that I'm looking at, that I'm hoping to find. But the way I'm being taught or thought to go about it is not the right way. See, good things, if they're accomplished in a bad way, can become bad things. And Jesus, I believe, he went out into the desert and he was tried for 40 days to prove that his faith and he himself was legitimate and was able to have the power to say the things and do the things that he said. But it's not just Jesus. If you read through the scriptures, like start with the life of Jesus. But you can go, there's guys like Abraham. He went to the desert. Isaac, Joseph, Moses, Ruth, Jesus, Paul. Some were literal deserts. Some were figurative deserts of going through difficult, hard times. Like you look at the life of Ruth. And you read a book named right after her. She like, you know, she's a young wife. She loses her husband and her, her brother-in-law and her father-in-law. She's a widow. Her sister-in-law's a widow. Her mother-in-law's a widow. And they have nothing left. Like we all love the end of the story where it's all like this romantic, wow, this is so great. But like, can you imagine being a young wife with no husband, especially in that culture? Like a lot of times we go through seasons of the desert and the desert isn't bad. It's just uncomfortable. And we already said this today, but here's the deal. You can have comfort or you can have growth, but you can't generally have both. And that's why we have to value the things that God values. The way to begin controlling our happiness and fighting back for control over our emotions and our attitudes is to begin to embrace and value the things that God values. That it's not all about this world. It's not all about the here and now. There's actually an eternal thing we're looking to. That's why the scriptures constantly are pointing back to the hope that we have and the eternal thing. Because right now we will go through difficulty. I love that that's how real life James is. He doesn't say if it's going to happen. He says when it happens. Like you're going to go through some stuff, and your stuff will be different than their stuff, but you're going to go through stuff, and you have to count it joy, and you have the ability to count it joy because it's producing something in you. And what it's producing is perseverance. And he says in verse 4, Let perseverance finish its work so you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. See, I ask God for wisdom because I realize I don't have everything. And I don't know everything. And here's just a, like a side note for you. If you need information, you need to ask the right people the right questions. 
going and talking, and it's just like real life. If your life has a situation where you're like going through something, going and talking to all your other disgruntled friends about something is not going to help you get wisdom probably. Right, like going to talk to your coworker about your manager, your boss, and how they're messing around with everybody. Like talking to them is not going to help. You got to go to the person. And let me tell you too. This advice, asking the right people the right questions, will help you in every area of life. Like for real, you go to the right person, you get the right questions, you get the right information. It's going to help you with everything. And James is saying the person to go to when you're going through trials is God, because He gives you wisdom, and you're acknowledging when you go to Him and ask for wisdom that you don't know everything. And you need wisdom. But then he goes on, he says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now, if you've been around people or if you've been a person that you're controlled by your emotions, you're controlled by your feelings, isn't a wave in the ocean a good analogy for how you live your life, how they live their life. They're just over here and over there and up here and back there and just everything pushes them all around and they're really unstable. And here's reality. Maturity and stability go hand in hand. If you want to be mature, you need to be stable. If you want to be stable, you have to be mature. And if you lack maturity, you need something to strengthen you and your stability. Again, this is like a, a free side note for parents, right? Like we have helicopter parents. Some people, y'all are helicopter parents right around your kids all the time. Some people, we're like steamroller parents where we just go around and smooth everything out for our kids. Here's the deal. If you smooth everything out for your kids, you make life easy for them. And people who have life easy for them do not have strong character, do not have strong ability to succeed in life. And you need to allow your kid, even for me, my kids are three, five, and one, right? And I love them, something special. It's incredible. I, I mean, they're so much fun. They're so crazy sometimes, but they're, like, so much fun, right? But there's even situations where, like, I can see a situation. I'm like, you're going to fall and you're going to get hurt. And I'm not going to let you get hurt. I'm not going to let you walk out into the street unless you're my one-year-old. Then I'll see how far you're going. You can walk out into the street. Uh, I don't let her go all the way into the street, okay? Some of you are like, man, this guy's crazy. Don't let him around kids. I am the next gem pastor, so... It could be around your kids. <laughs> but here's the deal. I'll be situations, even like my daughter, our, our five-year-old swinging back and forth, and our three-year-old will walk in front of her. I'm like, ooh, that's going to hurt. But you need to learn, don't walk in front of swings because you're going to get kicked in the face. Now, it's a safe environment. Like, we're right there. We pick her up, help her dust her off. But here's the deal. She's not going to walk in front of a swing again. And what happens is when we smooth everything out for her, or when we want things all smoothed out for us, we're robbing ourselves of maturity. And, like, I'm not saying you should go and embrace and go and do dumb things and hurt yourself. Like, I'm not saying you should do that. But also, we need to make sure we understand difficulty is not the enemy. And we can walk and say, there's a trial. There's nothing I need to walk through. It's building something in me, and it's helping me have maturity and stability. And this is what we all want. But even James here says, if you ask with doubts... Don't expect you should get anything. The passage, it says right here, if someone is doubting, they should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Now, for some of us, we were raised in a church environment where doubts were bad. Like, you shouldn't have doubts. You shouldn't have questions. If you have questions, you're rebellious, and that's wrong and bad, and all this thing. And here's the deal. Doubts are not bad. To be honest, I think if you don't have doubts, I'm more concerned about you than if you have doubts. Because if I have doubts, it shows I'm thinking about things. 
It shows I'm working through things. I'm trying to understand things. And I'm not just accepting everything you say. Because when you just start accepting something, everything someone says, doesn't matter if they're in a church context, a school context, a work context. If you believe someone 100% on everything, you're like a sheep being led to the slaughter because people get it wrong. And that's why we even try to tell people, like, go and look up, read the scriptures for yourself, check things out yourself. Because here's the deal. I could get it wrong because I'm human. And we get things wrong all the time, don't we? It's where you got to go and you got to look it up. But doubts are not the enemy. We also have to understand doubts because there are different kinds of doubts. There's a book called In Search of a Confident Faith where the writers lay out the idea of there's different aspects of faith, but there's also different aspects of doubt. And it's helpful for some of us because we've had doubts for years. We've never vocalized them or verbalized them because we're afraid that we'll be pushed out, we'll be rejected because we have doubts instead of understanding. This is a safe place for everybody, especially people with doubts. Because every one of us has doubts. In this book, it lays out three different kinds of doubts. It says the first would be like a lack of belief. Basically, almost like an ignorant doubt. You want to believe or you, you, you don't believe something, but you say, I want to believe it. Like, I just don't understand it. Even some of you, you've read the scriptures and you're like, did, like, did God really create the earth in seven literal days? Like, did that really have a, I, I mean, I'm open to believing it. I just don't believe it because I don't understand enough about it, which is totally fine. There's a lack of belief. Again, all of us, you have different errors. You say yes to Jesus. You turn and trust Jesus, but you don't know everything. That's normal. Right? Like, no one knows everything. So lack of belief, that's totally fine. Then there's also, they just call it just simple doubt. It's an emotional, psychological, intellectual hindrance to a more confident faith. It's something as simple as, like, we talk about God being a heavenly father and God caring for us, and you're saying, I never had that, so I don't know that that's true. Like, if we're honest, and this gets really difficult for a lot of us because emotions are really deep in us, which they should be. Emotions are a gift from our Creator. We should embrace them. We should feel the emotions that we have. Because I'm like, my dad wasn't good. My dad hit us. My dad did this, or my mom did that, or this thing happened. Like, you say God is good, and I don't understand that because I've never experienced that. So I don't believe that God is good because my dad wasn't good. My mom wasn't good. I'm not a good dad. I'm not a good mom. And again, it's an emotional, even intellectual or psychological side of going, I want to believe, I just don't because I have never experienced it. And those doubts are really hard. And they're really deep. But they're still okay to have. Because we can lead people to Jesus and embrace and understand you have doubts. But guess what? Jesus is the answer. Not some cheesy way that everything's good. Just believe Jesus. Don't think about it. But in a way to go, hey, Jesus really will help you heal from your emotional scars that you have. And the last kind of doubt they talk about is just the flat-out unbelief. The willful rejection of teaching. Basically, you're saying, I know what God says. I just disagree. I just don't like it, so I'm not going to listen to it. Like, God says this, but I really like this, and I shouldn't do this, but I just, I want to do it. I don't really care what God says. I'm going to have whatever I want. And this is even the area where we fight for freedom, but what we're doing is we fight for some freedom. We're actually going to be controlled by other things later. Because where God tells us things, even in particular, where God tells us things to stay away from things, because he knows those things are going to damage you big time. Now, again, before we even talk about what kind of doubt James is talking about in this passage, I just want to remind everybody and just really be clear everybody's welcome here. And we mean that. Come with your doubts. Jesus had people doubt him all the time. He was never threatened by them. He embraced them and said, come to me. If you're weary, if you're broken, if you're tired, if you have doubts, come here. I want to help you understand. Even our church, we got to be a place that's okay for people to have doubts and struggle and think through things. Isn't that right, church? 
Like that's who we have to be because that's who the person that we follow was like. So your question is, well, what kind of doubt is James talking about here? Because you're going through these and maybe you identified it for one or two or all three of these types of doubts. You go, well, what kind of doubt is James talking about? Here's the answer. I don't know. Doesn't that give you such confidence? My dude, you're like this person who's supposed to know. Like, if you don't know, how can we know? Well, here, honestly, you can research. You can find things yourself. I, I was researching this and trying to figure this out, and it's a little different because the word for doubt in the Greek and Hebrew, uh, and this is why we go back to Greek and Hebrew, the original languages, because they're actually deeper, richer languages. And you can look at that word and understand what that word means. But the book that I was referring to, they talked about the different types of doubt. They weren't saying these are from Hebrew and Greek words. They're saying from our experience, the things that we've seen, this is the way people doubt things. So the word for doubt that James was talking about, though, is talking about how we carefully evaluate and criticize things. Which that would lead me to believe, which is my thoughts on this, that the type of doubt James was talking about is the third type of doubt we talked about is the unbelief, the willful rejection of what God has. Because you carefully analyze and you criticize something. And in this context, it's saying if you are asking for wisdom and if you are evaluating and criticizing God, what you're saying is, God, you don't have the wisdom that you say you have and I don't need your wisdom. And doesn't it make sense that that person shouldn't expect to get wisdom from God? If I don't think you have what I need, if I don't believe you have what I need, I'm not going to ask you for it. I might say I'm asking you for it. It might sound words coming out of my mouth, but in my heart, I don't believe it. And God is saying, you're back and forth. You're all over the place. You don't really want the wisdom I'm having for you. It's like we all have that friend that has gets, they get stuck in trouble and they want help. And you try to offer them help, but like they don't really want your help. They just want to talk about their problem. And you're like, this is the solution right here. If you would do this, like, can I highlight it for you? Can I put a light on it? Can I, like, tape it to something in your house? Like, can I do anything for you? And, like, really, they don't really want the help. And you're saying, well, I'm not going to give you help then if you don't really want it. I think that's what God is saying through James is if you want wisdom and you really desire it, even if you have some doubts, that's okay. God will give you wisdom. But if you don't believe God has the wisdom you need, then why would God give it to you in the first place? Again, you're, you're tossed around your back and forth. And then James goes into kind of an interesting passage in verse, verse 9. It says, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they, have, they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with the scorching heat and withers the plant and the blossom falls, and its beauty is destroyed in the same way the rich will fade away even when they go about their business. Now some of you are like, I have no idea what that means. I hope you have, no, I hope you have an idea because like, you told me you didn't know anything about doubt, but like hopefully you understand what this is. This seems like, does this even make sense? And actually in the context, if you read it at first time, you go, this doesn't make any sense. But what James is pointing to is saying, whether you're rich or you're poor, when you go through trials, you can still choose joy because your value is not in the things you have. That's what the, that first line there, believers in humble circumstances, that's a kind way to say y'all are broke. You ain't got no money. And the rich people, they can take pride when they are, go through the humiliation of losing things. Because even in that culture, bad things shouldn't happen to rich people. Like, especially in that culture, they had the means, they had the ability, they just pay people to do things, handle any problem they had. And when they went through difficulty, really, it's going, okay, why are you going through a trial? You're wealthy, you should be fine. Some of us still feel that way. And, and you, you, honestly, you demonize people who have more than you because you think that they acquired it in a wrong way. And I think, honestly, that says more about you than it does about them. 
is understanding my hope is not in my stuff. So when I go through trials, whether I get stuff or I lose stuff, my hope is not in my stuff. And I can choose joy no matter the circumstance, no matter what's going on. Because I have something that's being built in me, this maturity, this perseverance. And what is it ultimately producing in me? Because everything I go through is producing something in me. It's producing a crown of life. James goes on and says, blessed is the one who perseveres under the trial. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. See, blessed here, blessed just means happy. Like, that's the exact word. You go, bless, you translate it from the Greek to English. It just means happy. And happy are the people who run away from trials and don't go through difficult things. Right? That's what James says. That's not what James says at all. He says, blessed are people who go through the trial because when you've withstood the test, you receive the crown of life. You receive a reward from your heavenly Father, from your King Jesus. You receive something because you went through the trial because the trial is producing something in you. Your faith was shown legitimate by going through the trial. And then now you get the crown of life, and the crown of life is for those who love him. It's interesting. It doesn't say the crown of life is... For those who obey him, for those who trust him, for those who fear him. Simply the crown of life is for those who love him. And I think the reason is because love is the ultimate expression of your values. Because I can obey someone, but I don't have to love them. I can do something in my actions, and in my heart, I'm far from them. Some of us, that's how we've lived our lives in different seasons, where we've gone through, and we go, I have no love for this situation, this work, this person, whatever, but I'm going to go through the difficult work of pretending for a while, and then pretty soon we get tired of pretending, so we step away. It's where love is the key motivator for us. Because what we value, or we will end up valuing what we love, and our values always impact our attitudes. So again, the question is, is what do you love? Like in choosing to control your attitudes, your joy, your emotions, first it starts with, with your values, and for your values to really take root in your heart, it's do you love those things? I think that's why for so many of us, we don't love something we're trying to do, so we get tired of it and we give up on it and we allow something else to control us. Why? Because we love that thing more. It's where James is saying you have the ability to choose joy in the midst of the trials because you can value the eternal things that Jesus has promised and not just the temporary. Because as good as some temporary things are, eternal things are far better. And so we have to understand with our emotions, with our attitudes, when we react and say, well, I just can't help it. I just act this way. Like, no, you didn't just act that way. You got to ask yourself the questions. What am I valuing that's causing me to react this way? Like, like really think about, like, what am I valuing? Even for me trying to get out the door. If I'm getting out the door, I'm getting kind of angry and mean at my kids because that's what dads do primarily, I guess, dads. Moms do it too, Right? But dads, we do it, we're like, you're not moving fast enough, and what happens? Because surely the way to get someone to work faster is to get louder, right? Because that works every time with my kids. Actually, it never works. What happens, our three-year-old is so sensitive, she'll just sit, up, sit and cry. Like, okay, well, for real, one time I made her cry just looking at her, just because I wanted to see if I could. Because like, I'm like, I wasn't really mad at her, I was just like, how sensitive are you really? And Rachel's like, why are you doing that? I'm like, because... 
I want to. And I'm a dad. But when I get angry about stuff, and when I express and try to bring up my own worth and bring up whatever I have going inside me, when you're at work, when you're at home, wherever the relationship is, when you try to manipulate someone, stop and ask yourself, what am I valuing right now that's causing me to act this way? Because if you're anything like me, you're going to be embarrassed about the thing that you're valuing in the moment. And here's the thing that's powerful. This is something we, we, we have to just remember all the time is we have a choice. Like whatever you're going through in life, you have a choice. You have the ability to say, yeah, this thing would cripple me and literally might cripple me and this thing might take me away to heaven, but I have a choice on how I react in this moment and what things I'm choosing right now. The incredible thing, even as we, we were talking about this, this study that Sean Aker did uh, with, with Harvard, the incredible thing is, is I said, science and, and Scripture, a lot of times they affirm each other and they complement each other. And they're not at odds with each other. He actually wrote down things that you would need to do if you took as little as two minutes a day for 21 days to retrain your brain to be positive and to choose happiness in, in spite of the circumstance. Now, if you've been around church for any time, length of time, you're going to recognize these things and you're going to be like, did he really say this? This guy, to my knowledge, is not a believer. He's not trying to, to teach a biblical perspective on happiness. He's taking a psychological, scientific perspective. He said, this is how you retrain, retrain your brain to be happy. First thing you do is gratitude. Find three new things you're grateful for every day. And I know for some of you, even knowing some of you, your story, where you're at in life, it might feel suffocating to even try to think of one thing you can be grateful for right now. And this is why scripture says so often, choose thankfulness, choose gratitude. Because when I can look and find something that I'm thankful for, despite my circumstance, you might just be happy you have a table to sit at to eat breakfast at. Right? Like you're going to start with some really big things. You're going to be thankful for my house, I'm for heat. And then pretty soon you're like, man, I'm running out of things. I gotta be, I'm really thankful for this shirt that I'm wearing. And I'm thankful for my shoes. And I'm thankful for my pants. Those are my three things I'm thankful for today. And you move on the next day. But here's the reality. When you can be grateful and choose thanksgiving, it will change your heart. The second thing he talks about is journaling. Write about one positive experience in the last 24 hours. And what happens when you write it down is you relive it in your brain. And soon you are training your brain to look and to find positive things. Third thing he said is exercise. You got to get active. You just got exercise. Make it fun. Exercise the way you would like to exercise. Just get out and start doing stuff. And it's remarkable the impact simply getting active will have in your life. The fourth thing he said is mod- uh, meditation. Now, I added prayer because while I'm not sure if Sean is a, is a believer, I am a believer. I believe prayer is powerful and important. He's saying meditation, the way he even put it is getting away from the ADHD culture that we live in to really focus your brain on one thing. And I even think the power of that also is if you're able to focus on one positive thing and you can really, really help yourself focus on that, you're going to push away all the negative, all the bad things you're trying to think about. So meditation and prayer. And the last thing he said was random acts of kindness. Even in particular what they did in their studies, they told people, write one email thanking someone or positively thanking them or praising somebody else. Let's be real. For some of you, you're waiting to achieve something in order to be happy and you're seeing other people achieve things and you are bitter because of their happiness, because of their success. And imagine the power would have in your life is if you wrote them an email congratulating them, praising them, telling them how good they did. 
And this is where the power is because imagine the impact you'd have for Jesus if you live this way. Imagine the impact you'd have because the reality is people are watching. And in my house, I got three little kids and my wife watching me, watching everything I do, watching the way I react when they spill juice all over themselves at dinner last night, watching the way I react when they're slow and can't get their shoes on, watching the way I treat their mother, how we interact when there's a disagreement or expectation that's not met. Like, my kids are watching everything that I'm doing. And a lot of you have people in your house watching everything you're doing, but you also, every single one of us, have people outside of our house watching. You have classmates watching. You have coworkers watching. You have neighbors watching. And here's the deal. If we claim to have power and joy and life to the fullest in Jesus, how can we walk around broken and sad and moping and choosing negativity over happiness and joy? Because we can either control our attitudes or our attitudes will control us. And this is where you see the incredible power of the gospel, as I've seen several times, where people are walking through legitimately the darkest seasons of life and they're still able to raise their hands and praise Jesus. And it's not that they're being fake and pretending everything is okay because everybody knows it's not okay. They're saying, I choose Jesus, and because I choose Jesus, I choose joy right now because I believe what he said, that he has something better for me. That This is not all there is, and because of his promises, I will fight for control over my happiness, over my emotions, and over my attitudes. And when we choose joy despite the circumstances, we actually immolate and we're a mirror of Jesus. See, in Hebrews it says that Jesus, talk about Jesus, it says, for the joy, joy, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Talking about Jesus, the, the life of Jesus. If you've never heard this before, maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Jesus lived the life we could not live, and He died the death we deserve. He took our punishment and the payment for our sins because you know this, I know this. We don't measure up, we're not good enough. Even according to your standards, you're not good enough. According to my standards, I'm not good enough, let alone a perfect God that sees everything and weighs my heart and everything. And you know you're not good enough, and we know bad things happen to bad people. And every single one of us, the bad news is we are bad people, but Jesus set before him the joy. The joy was to redeem all of humanity back to himself. Everybody can come. Anyone who wants can come and be part of the new life that's found in Jesus. Said, Jesus said, that's my joy, and because that is my joy, because we are his joy, he will endure the trial and the difficulty of the cross, and he will die in our place to offer us life. Jesus', Jesus death in your place showed that he was willing to, to take your spot, but then his resurrection showed that he had the power to actually do that. And when we endure trials and difficulties and acknowledge, man, this is hard, this is not fun, I am not enjoying, this is incredibly difficult, but I still choose joy, we get to show people how great our Savior is. And that gives you tremendous power to share the message of hope that's fine in Jesus because you show people you actually have hope. See, Scripture, again, teaches that we are not good enough. You know that. I know that. But it also says if we believe 
If we believe in Jesus, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that he is the way to God, not that he came with a message of God, not that he came with an idea about God, that he actually was God. We believe in his death and resurrection to pay for our punishment, the thing that we all deserve. Then we can have his life when we choose him. And for us in the house, man, so many of us, we acknowledge, man, I know I've blown up. I know I've messed up. I know I've fallen short. I don't measure up. And we believe, but we've never chosen. And choosing joy begins with choosing Jesus. Because if you don't have Jesus, when you walk through difficult trials, you have nothing to look back to. I think for some people in the house, you want to choose Jesus. So I'm going to ask everyone, would you all stand to your feet, both campuses, as well as one church standing together? And would you, out of respect for people around you, just, just put your heads down, bow your heads. Again, just for respect for people around you, because so many people, you want to react. You want to respond to what God is doing, but you feel nervous and you're unsure about it. And I want to help you with that. And one way you can help people feel comfortable is by just giving them some privacy. Now, so many of us in the house today, you would say, man, I am going through some difficulty. I am going through some trial, and I need prayer because I need wisdom and strength. Would you just raise your hand up right now, both campuses? You raise your hand and say, I'm going through some trial, some difficulty. I see you in the front. I see you here on the side. I see you in the back over there, over here on this side, up here in the front, in the middle here. People all over the place. You're going through trials. You're going through difficulties. This is where James's real life, they will come. It's not if they come, it's when they come. I want to pray for you that you would have the faith to ask God for wisdom and you'd have strength through your trial. You can put your hands down. I also want to pray for other people in here. So many of us, we'd acknowledge that we, we just know we don't measure up. You know you're not good enough, and you you admit it. You go, man, like, I get that, and I'm hoping my good will outweigh my bad. But here's the truth. You can't keep track of that, and your good is never going to outweigh your bad. My good is never going to outweigh my bad. And we need to admit, be honest with ourselves and be honest with God that we don't measure up and we need help. We also get to believe, though, believe that Jesus is the only help for us, that his life and death paid for our punishment and paved the way for us to have life with him forever, that he died in our place on the cross and resurrected three days later, and he offers us life now and life to come. And so many of you are saying, yeah, I believe that. I acknowledge that. Like, yes, Jesus has saved me. And I am so glad our church has seen people all the time come to Jesus and keep coming to Jesus. But also there's some of you, today is the day you want to choose to say yes to Jesus. You've heard about how you don't measure up. You've heard about how you need to save you. You've heard about how Jesus is willing to save you, but you've never actually chosen Jesus. And what I want to ask for you to do in just a second is would you just lift your hands and say, yes, I want to choose Jesus because here's the deal. We want to celebrate with you, and we want to show you love, and we want to get you into community because trials will come. And we want to walk with you through those trials and help you experience life to the full, even in the midst of the trials. So if you want to choose Jesus for the first time today, would you lift your hands right now and say, yes, I want to choose Jesus. I see you right here in the middle. I see you over here in the front. Anyone want to say, yes, I want to choose to say yes to Jesus. Church, would you make some noise and get loud for people choosing to say yes to Jesus and acknowledging that he is able and willing to save them? all over the house. Would you join me as we close in prayer? God, thank you so much for what you're doing in our gathering. God, for people choosing to say yes to Jesus. God, I just pray that, that people would 
continue to walk in that decision, God, that they would continue to know who you are. And God, as trials are coming for so many of us, God, that we would have wisdom and strength, God. That we'd have wisdom to come to you and truly ask you for what we need in the season. And God, also that we'd have strength to endure knowing that the hope that we have is that we will be mature and lack nothing and we will have a life with you. Thank you so much for saving us. Thank you so much for giving us your strength. We love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed this message, would you do us a favor and rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher? You can actually now listen to us on Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts. Basically, this just helps us get the message of Jesus out to more people. And the other thing I would say is, we would love for you to join us at one of our gatherings. One of the things we work really hard at is to create a safe place for people to be able to ask questions, to be able to investigate and grow in their faith if they're longtime followers of Jesus. And one of the things that we say a lot is regardless of what background you're coming from, you can belong here before you believe. And so if you want more information about our church, our location, service times, just go to our website at centerpointfl.org.